Jakara all about her health journey and what it's like to find out you need to have a heart transplant. Now, we did have some audio issues for this episode, so I apologize in advance for any sound issues during the episode, but I hope you enjoy. Thank you for coming on. That's all right. Thank you for having me. It's pretty cool what you're doing. I like the idea. It's really, really cool. (laughs) Can you just start by giving us some background on you? Yeah, sure. So my name is Cara. I'm 38 years old. And when I was born, I was born with a pretty complex, and at the time in 1984, it was quite rare, congenital heart disease or condition, which they diagnosed at the time as pulmonary atresia with other complications. Um, basically I had no outlet on the right side of my heart. Um, so I was called what they used to call a blue baby. And following that, I had my first heart surgery at three days old. I then had my second heart surgery at six days old. And then my parents were basically told um, what Cara's got is quite rare. We've never really quite come with it before. Um, we, you know, we don't believe that she is going to live very long. So basically take her home, enjoy her while you've got her because we don't think she'll, you know, it'll be a miracle if she sort of survives past the age of six. Um, and then about six months after that, my mum was actually got actually got a call. I think she said it was like a Friday night, and it was one of the professors that I was under. And he said to mum, "I've just come back from America, and I think I've seen a surgery that could work for Kara." However, it's never been performed in Australia before and it's never been performed on a newborn. Um, So there's no guarantees uh, that it would work, you know. And mum said, how do I make that decision? What would you do? And he said, if I was you, Mrs Curran, I would go ahead with the surgery because if you don't, you're going to lose her. Um, However, if we do this surgery and it's successful, I don't know how much more time you have with Cara, but you'll have, you know, extra time. So mum said her very words were, well, I don't have a choice then, let's do it. And so I had a surgery at six months old. And then I just thrived after that. I, they, I, we had moved from Sydney to Coffs Harbour um, and I was pretty blessed. I lived a pretty normal childhood. I was in every sport. I didn't really, it didn't really stop me from doing anything. I, I was, I just thought I, growing up, I just thought I had a scar and I was sick when I was a baby. Um, I didn't actually grasp the severity of it and every I just knew every year we would go down to Sydney to Prince of Wales Hospital for a checkup 
and every checkup, the my cardiologist at the time would say to mum and dad, I don't know what you're doing, but keep on doing it because we actually can't explain why she's going so well. And I often credit my parents for how they raised me as to why I survived as long as I have because my parents, I was never raised to think I was a sick person. Um, I never, like I wasn't really stopped from doing anything. They were careful in a sense, like when growing up, I remember I had two like rules or things that mum would say. If my lips and my fingers were purple or blue and I wasn't cold to tell somebody and if I felt breathless or tired. But um, yeah, so I, so that was how my, entry into the world started in my childhood so when I was 21 in that time I'd moved from my home in, on the north coast in Coffs Harbour down to Sydney because you know I was young and didn't want to live in a small town wanted to do the big city thing and I was I had my first proper job and you know I was young I just moved to the city I was working full time for the first time in my life and I literally just thought I'd been burning the candle at both ends and because I started to get really tired and my health went downhill a bit and it sounds so silly because I remember at the time I didn't even put it down to my heart I literally just thought I'd been you know burning the candle at both ends and I when they had a look basically the surgery they did when I was six months old they basically man-made a pulmonary valve and thinking because they used my own tissue it would grow but obviously it didn't so I actually well it wasn't even a, a proper valve anymore it was so worn out but I actually still had the valve of a six-month-old so when I was 21 I had my fourth open surgery and I was given a brand new pulmonary valve and that gave me a new lease on life because obviously I'd never had a working valve and now I did. So after that, I, I just grabbed life by the horns and sort of I started travelling and just, you know, getting back into life and doing all that. And then when did you start getting sick again? Yeah, so I went really well, like uh, and like I said, because I'd never had a proper working valve. It was like the best I'd ever felt. I'd never had so much energy, and it was so probably about 2016. Um, we actually were overseas. We'd just finished backpacking Southeast Asia, and my partner Pav. He is from the Czech Republic, so we'd actually were staying with his family. And I started to notice a few things. And again, sounds so silly and naive. I didn't put it down to my heart. I just thought because we'd been backpacking and, you know, living that sort of lifestyle, I was just worn myself out a bit. And there was this moment we were going for a bike ride in his little hometown and it was all flat surface and I couldn't couldn't ride very far and I started to get really breathless so I sort of started to think mm, maybe something's going on here but 
I knew that I had a cardiologist appointment coming up when we got back to Australia. So I just put it off for a couple of months and didn't really, you know, think too much about it. And then at the end of 2016, we'd moved back to Australia by that time and I had my checkup and, uh, like, in that time frame, a few other things I started to notice, like I started to get a little bit of fluttering heartbeats, which is called AFib, and just a few, just tired, no energy. And I had my regular checkup and my cardiologist at the time said, yes, um, there's been some change. And then that's when we found out that I needed another surgery. And basically said that because my heart has been overworking and probably overcompensating for that valve, um, there was parts of my heart on the right side had started to um, stop working effectively. So in January of 2017, we went ahead with my fifth heart surgery at Westmead and that was quite a big surgery. That was probably one of the biggest surgeries I've ever had. So with that surgery, I had a pulmonary and aortic valve replacement. I had what they also called a bidirectional glen shunt. So basically they rerouted my blue blood to go rather than go how everybody else is, goes round the heart and then to your lungs. They rerouted it so it goes straight to my lungs. And the idea of that was to try and take pressure off the right side. Um, they also anticipated that maybe later on when I was a bit older, I might need a pacemaker, but because they did that bi-directional glen shunt, um, they had to put in the pacing wires before they did that because once they rerouted and sort of changed my plumbing, they wouldn't be able to get the pacing wires in. So I, I currently still have pacing wires, but no pacemaker. And, yeah, so that was quite a big operation and I never, I knew pretty pretty much straight away because I had the surgery when I was 21 to go off. I knew pretty much straight away as soon as I came out of ICU that I just didn't, something wasn't right. Like, I just didn't feel. And they, but they were quite happy with the surgery and they seemed to think, that it might have just been anxiety and, you know, just I, it was because it was such a big operation, they said, you know, it's going to take a little bit longer to cover and you're a bit older now. So because when I had that one, I was in my early 30s, whereas the operation I had, when, which was number four, I was like 21. So, you know, you listen to the doctors, but I had a pretty horrific recovery. I didn't actually ever fully recover. Um, I was air ambulance from Coffs Hub a couple of times back to Sydney. Um, I couldn't keep anything down. I just felt un generally unwell all over. But they they were doing all these tests and they just kept saying, I think you've just got a bit of anxiety, you know, everything's fine. 
And, yeah, so that was quite traumatic for me, I guess, because, you know, you have all these people saying you're fine but you don't feel well. And then because you have all these, you know, people in the medical world saying, no, 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 everything's fine, there's nothing wrong, you know, I think you just need to, like, maybe go get some help because you might have the cardiac, what they call the cardiac blues, which is sort of like post-surgery depression that they talk about. And because of that, obviously, my family then started to be like, you know, well, there's, they've said there's nothing wrong. So it was quite traumatic for me because I started, I'd never had mental health issues before. And then I started to get really bad anxiety panic attacks, PTSD, because I thought, oh, my God, I'm going crazy. What? There's nothing wrong with me. And I just tried to compensate and just tried to think, okay, well, maybe this is my new normal. And that went on so from January 2017. And then I sort of plateaued and was okay, but not 100% around June of 2017 and I just thought oh well this is my new normal so I st me and my partner in that time moved to the Gold Coast I I rented the workforce and started working full-time again and I went okay for six months and then in December of 2017 I started to really go downhill again where I couldn't keep anything down. I was really sick, like just felt well. I had quite a few hospital um, admissions and trips to the emergency department at um, two hospitals on the Gold Coast. I think I had one or two ambulance rides and that went on till about... Ooh, April of 2018 and I remember I there was a period of a week where I started taking photos of my stomach because I actually didn't keep anything down but I looked like I was nine months pregnant like I had a really swollen belly and I ended up sending an email to my cardiologist in Sydney with the photos and I said I understand everybody keeps saying you know this the operation went well and there's you know there's nothing going on but I said I the, like I know my body I said something's not right and he said I want to get you in to have a checkup um, I can either get you down to Sydney or I have a work colleague who also specializes in adults with congenital heart disease that works out of Brisbane. So because we were living on the Gold Coast at the time, I said, oh, I'll just go to Brisbane. And when, so the next week I had an appointment booked and we went up and thank goodness for this man because without him I actually don't think I would be here talking to you today. He took one look at me and said, I think you're in heart failure. Um, he drained two and a half to three litres of fluid and excess blood and 
yuck stuff that had not been pumped properly over the past, you know, four, what was it, 14 months um, that had been pooling in my abdomen and my liver. Um, due to that, and then I had a bunch of other tests, and due to that he said that I also had quite bad liver damage. I had what they called medically induced cirrhosis. Um, and then as soon as he drained the fluid, I and he put me on a fluid restriction and some fluid tablets, I felt I felt hundred percent better. And he booked me in for a cardiac cath, a right heart cath, which is where they basically it's a little tiny camera where they either put make an incision in your neck or they make an incision in your groin and put it up through and they measure the pressures of your heart. So I had that scheduled and when I had that, that's when we found out that the operation actually hadn't worked how they thought and I'd actually gone into end stage heart failure and I had early signs of liver failure and that was when we first heard the word transplant. He said to my mum, who was me at the time, and me, he said, what Cara needs is a heart transplant. Um, that I think we've done everything we can surgically. Um, however, because it is such a high-risk surgery and, you know, such, such a big step, he said, what I want to do is try and slow the failure down a bit and put, so he started me on some medication and yeah that's how we first heard the word transplant and sort of slowly entered into the transplant world and all the doctors you know telling you that you're fine you're fine when you clearly feel like some you're not fine has that caused any issues with you any like medical ptsd or like mistrust of doctors Yes, and I get really frustrated because I actually, because, you know, the medical system, the medical world and hospitals and all that has been such a routine part of my life and my family's life. Um, that's one thing when I think about it, I get really upset and angry and frustrated because I never had an issue. Like, I... It was so normal to me and such a routine part of my life that, you know, I'd always had full trust and faith and any hospital admission, like I'd just breeze through it. Like I never gave it a second thought. And because of that, I it's almost like it's almost like a broken down relationship because the trust isn't there. But I'm someone that's going to need to have the medical world a part of my life for the rest of my life and it's really hard because it did it broke all uh, the trust got broken down um it like I said before like it caused me massive mental health issues because you know it's really it's really scary when if you've never experienced mental health or anything like that, and it's really scary not being believed, like 
because it also started to there was times where I felt like I couldn't even go to my family or my partner because and it's no fault of their own because we had all these people who you meant to have full trust in telling us no there's nothing wrong so it had started to cause a little bit of I don't want to say friction but it was really hard because my family were getting frustrated and and my partner because you know I was so worked up there was days when I was in the thick of it where this was before we found out that you know there actually was something wrong there were days where I would just beg my partner not to go to work like I couldn't be alone like it was just so scary and it's it's been really triggering for me going onwards because I get so triggered now when I feel like I'm not being heard but now whenever I have any interaction or any or given any information I'm always second guessing because I'm like hmm so it, it it is it is so extremely triggering because you know it's just nobody knows your own body like yourself and I'm just yeah yeah no it's just really hard especially for someone like you said who you know you meant I'm gonna have to have faith in the medical world for the rest of my life and you just gotta try I'm trying to get the trust back again if that makes sense and then when did you start getting sick again or getting worse Obviously, when we had the cardiocatheter, like I said, that was the first time we heard transplant mentioned. And so once he once the cardiologist and the cardiac team in Brisbane drained the fluid and I was put on fluid restriction. At the time, it was a two-liter fluid restriction. I was on fluid medication, some a lot of cardiac meds, and it just stabilized me so I was still unwell but I, I was coping I was able to work full time but I would kind of go through highs and lows so I'd go good for a couple of months and then my health or my body it was like I think just because it's overworking it had just spaz out and like for a couple of months I'd have a really low period where you know I wasn't able to function properly um, and I just had to learn to adapt to that which was quite hard for me My condition had never stopped me from doing anything and it, if it did I was always determined and would just push through and um, so that I found found challenging yeah I would go on highs then I'd go good for a couple of months then I'd go bad for a couple of months and in in those years, every now and then I'd have a hospital admission for a week or two. And also during that time when we found out that, you know, I needed a new heart, um, but we were going to be trialled on meds and try and slow this failure down. There was a lot of times it was quite hard and challenging mentally because we were trying to process information and the goalposts, so to speak, were forever changing. So when we found out that I was going to eventually need a heart, 
and that I was now in end-stage heart failure because the team was so worried about also focused on my heart the way we got told a bit of information about pregnancy was so casual it was just like so in that time we actually got told oh and by the way don't ever fall don't fall pregnant it'll kill you sort of thing and I felt I feel really silly and naive because maybe I should have asked nobody in all my adult years had ever said that my heart could be an issue of me carrying a pregnancy so to be told that when I was 35 whilst we've just been told you're gonna you you know your heart's slowly failing and you're gonna need a new one it was really hard to process that along with the other things I never I never realized my heart could have an effect on other areas of life if that makes sense so in a sense, it was quite challenging at times mentally because we we were trying to process this and while we're trying to process this, you know, then the goalposts moved to over here and it's like, oh, hang on, but we're, tr- we're still trying to, you know, work through that. So that part of it had it, its ups and downs. And then I started to have... Um, a pretty a low couple of months last year at the start of last year and I had a checkup as soon as I walked in he took one look at me and we both both agreed like I just said I'm I'm done like I need I need to know next steps or we need to like I can't keep going on like this and he, he agreed he said I'm going to refer you to the heart and lung team, transplant team down at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. Um, He actually didn't think I was um, sick enough to be considered yet. He actually said, I actually don't think they'll list you, but let's just get them familiar with your case because eventually you will be under them like a little weight had been lifted off my shoulders because I was like, oh, okay, now we've got the next the next phase in progress sort of thing. And about a month later, I had my first appointment with the team and it happened to fall when the last bit of the COVID, heavy COVID lockdowns and Sydney went into lockdown and all that so I actually was quite negative about my upcoming appointment because of the COVID situation they changed it from a face-to-face to not even a it wasn't even a video it was just going to be a phone call and I thought at the time I was I was being so negative about it because I was like oh this is like how they've never met me before like how are they going to you know, they don't even know my history. Like I just didn't, I'm just one that has to, I I deal better when I'm, you know, face-to-face and in person. And I could have, couldn't have been more wrong. (laughs) I, um, my mum took the morning off and so did my partner. And the professors sang 
and she said, can I call you back in 20 minutes? I'm still going through your case. It's quite complex and there's a lot of information to take in. And so we were like, yeah, sure. And again, I was like, oh, you know, thinking at the time, oh, God, they're not prepared, blah, blah, blah. And again, oh, it's proven wrong. So true to her word, she phoned minutes later within the first five minutes of that second call that she she made um she started saying all right i'm going to give you i'm emailing off a shopping she called it my shopping list and it was a list of tests that i had to do and it was what we call work up to transplant so you basically have to have every test imaginable because with transplant it's a little like you have to be sick enough to need a transplant but you also have to be healthy enough with your other areas of your body that you're going to survive the transplant so she's like I'm going to send you your shopping list and she started going into the workup testing and I said oh does this mean I'm eligible and her very words were oh honey you're more eligible and I remember thinking at the time, oh, gosh, because it sounded like I'd been eligible for quite a while. Um, and it sounds so ridiculous because, you know, although scary and, you know, needing a whole new organ and one of your main organs, so heavy. And I almost felt elated because finally I was like, oh, we'd been working up to this moment for you know, four, three and a half years or whatever it was, and it was just not so silly, but it was almost like I was a little bit excited or happy, and it kind of stemmed from there. So now that you're on the transplant list, you're basically just waiting for a phone call, right? So um, it took, on the 24th of September last year, I was officially listed and they discovered during my workup testing, so for the whole of my workup testing before I got listed, we had mentally prepared and so did the team. They actually thought I was going to need a new heart and a new liver. Um, and they said because of that, it's quite complex because we've actually never performed that type of transplant before. So that it was quite an anxious way leading up to finding out if I was actually going to be listed because they there was a chance that it might have been too complex, that it was too risky, so they I may not have been listed at all. So anyway, I got a call on the 24th of September to say that I was being officially listed and it was just going to be the heart because they said what we think is once you get a proper working heart, your liver will rejuvenate itself. So that was that was quite happy and quite good. It sounds so ridiculous, but again, we were celebrating like, oh, just the heart, like. Um, and I, again, I don't know whether it's blind optimism or I'm naive, but I, I got listed in September of last year, and I literally thought I was going to have had the transplant by Christmas and be recovered. Like, I had I had no idea. Um, so they discovered because of 
all my past surgeries, transfusions, then probably because I've had donor valves in the past, I have extremely high antibodies and it's called highly being highly sensitized. So basically it they described it as a shrunk my donor pool right down, which is the reason why I've been waiting so long. So basically regardless of rejection meds, if I get a heart from a certain tissue, my body will just reject it and attack the organ. Um, so that so since September up until now, they have been discussing my case quite a lot um, and they have been consulting with antibody specialists and we're just, whilst I'm waiting, we're just in the process um, of trying to get my, lowering my antibodies so it can increase my chances. You don't realise how much goes into needing an organ. Like I just thought you get, uh, you just have to match blood types and you, you get heart. There's so much that goes into it. But as I hit the 12-month mark back in September 2022, I, I started to get quite down with it all. Um, it's been quite challenging mentally the last couple of months because, you know, I think reality has set in a little bit. At the start, I never considered that there could be another outcome to all of this where I actually might get a heart. And the longer that I wait, the more I'm deteriorating, the more that reality is actually hitting me. Um, I'm still quite optimistic and, you know, I'm still being positive, but it is hard. Um, it's made me feel emotions that I don't really sometimes know how to navigate um, and they're quite foreign to me. I've always been a very happy, go-lucky, positive, outgoing person who celebrates wins for everyone, you know, loves celebrating wins for family and friends. And it's the longer the wait is, there's days where... You know, you have so many emotions, you don't know how to um, process them. There's been times when I felt like such an awful person and so guilty because, you know, people I've connected with and made friends with throughout this journey who are also waiting for, for hearts, they've all had their transplant. And I remember the first time I actually felt felt guilty for feeling how I felt was I there was a friend who received a heart and I'd met them through the same clinic and I think because we were through the same clinic it was like oh he like they're waiting as well and I remember when I got the message to say that you know they'd had their call it was so hard because I'd never felt so happy for someone, but yet so angry. And it was really quite scary because there's this human nature. Like, you're like, why me? Like, why am I taking so long? Like, you know, and it's been hard sometimes to 
always remain positive when there's an end result. Unfortunately, the last bit of the interview with Kara ended up being unusable, but I asked Kara what you can do to help someone who's on the transplant list. She said they can help by registering as an organ donor at donatelife.gov.au and make sure you have the chat with your family as they are ultimately the ones who will have the final say. So even if you are registered as an organ donor, they can still say no on your behalf. And to remember that the next person who may need the help of an organ donation could be your loved one. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to get our episodes each week and leave a review if you are enjoying the podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Sigivit Podcast and Instagram at Sigivit underscore podcast. I'll talk to you next week. Bye.